Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and Julia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, it's going to be just the three of us. We wanted to do an episode that would sort of look back at the past year and also reflect on what's in store for Ukraine and the Eastern Front more broadly in 2024. And we all have picked events or, or sort of situations that we've sort of seen uh, unfold over the past year that we would like to sort of discuss individually and then collectively and start with Giselle. Uh, thanks, Delavore. Um I guess I would begin with this kind of a, some thoughts about the arc of the year. I, I was thinking early in the year last year after the successful uh, Ukrainian Uh, recapture of Kharkiv and other parts of uh, northeast Ukraine uh, and the miserable miserable performance of the Russian military last year, that things were really looking up uh, not only for Ukraine, but for sort of the cause of liberty and security uh, in Eastern Europe uh, more broadly. And obviously now it seems like... uh, those those hopes have not been realized as much as one would like. Uh, there's actually been, you know, some progress made, but not nearly the progress that, that we had hoped for. Um, and certainly casting forward into next year, one can only, I think at best, summon a, uh, an attitude of grim determination to try to see the project forward, but understanding that... Uh, the the prospect of a quick victory and a quick sort of liberation and and a real defeat uh, of Russia's attempts to reclaim an imperial posture in Eastern Europe uh, are going to take some time, are probably going to be uh, very costly in blood, especially Ukrainian blood, but also in riches for Western Europe and the United States. And one has to now have questions about Western will, broadly speaking, and commitment uh, to the cause. So uh, we've got to dig deep uh, to try to come up with a new level of strength, willpower, commitment, determination. I think the stakes are, as if anything, even greater going forward. We were talking in our last uh, recording uh, about what the consequences of a Russian success would be, uh, not only in terms of, uh, you know, uh, Russia's imperial project, but what the consequences m- might be for uh, a Western Europe, a Europe, a free Europe that feels abandoned by the United States. So um, I would take from this, I hope, a renewed determination rather than a sense of defeatism. But that, that renewed determination, you know, is that something that we are actually observing or something we are wishing for? 
uh, to sort of see a manga political leaders. It strikes me that the sort of central variable in this that's determining so much of the outcomes on the battlefield and beyond is, you know, like how much in terms of resources and money and 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 and, and weapon systems the West and particularly the United States uh, is willing to um, to dedicate to the cause and on that front I mean, the, the trends are not exactly optimistic hopefully there'll be a supplemental in january but if if it's not i think the the prospect for ukraine is is a really dark one indeed i you know certainly would agree that the supplemental is critical in the near term you know for the first six months or so of, of the year but it's just you know the first step uh toward reversing the slide that we've seen in the last six months or so that in and of itself won't get us and most really won't get ukraine where it needs to go where it wants to go and to the point uh, that could seriously be marked up as a victory for the united states for nato for the european alliance and for free people in europe if we're talking before we go into the supplemental and what that means for the next few months, because I think that's important and that's what we're all asking, um, audience, us, um, policymakers. But before we get there in terms of, I guess, crucial elements that are also to some extent dictating what is going to happen in the next few months, to me, there's been two, um, and I'm, I'm struggling to see how to frame them to um, to make this conversation as constructive as possible. But the first one is, first of all, the attention on the region. It was the first time, um, 2022 and 2023, that the Black Sea region has been highlighted, that Ukraine has become really the on on the front page of every newspaper across the Atlantic for a long time, and that that there is now overall due to this and of course the bravery of Ukrainians more understanding that than there was two years ago about how important this region is and how it is crucial to great power competition, strategic competition. And strictly speaking, if we are to focus on the wins too, at the end of the year, we have a Black Sea that is freer than it was at the beginning of the year. And that's a win of Ukraine, despite having major limitations imposed by the West in terms of military ability and, and instruments. So I think it's worth um, celebrating that and looking that at, at, at that as a highlight for 2023, despite all odds. The other part, though, is, and I'll frame it as, as follows. The major discrepancy in understanding of what is happening and where the front line, the battlefield is heading between the two sides of the Atlantic. And I think at here at the Eastern Front, we've done a pretty good job at trying to marry these, bring them closer um, and increase our and and everyone's to, to the extent that we could understanding of what is going on. But these discrepancies we still see. I was watching on 
December 19th, the major press conference of Zelensky. And as uh, well as he has performed um, throughout this war, it seemed at the end of the year that the messaging is in sync with the messaging of Western leaders, his main supporters, but completely out of touch with reality. Um, completely out of touch with, and this is the, the major point here, the assessment of the battlefield um, at the end of the year and the assessment of the counteroffensive. And, and I'll um, stop with this kind of grist for mill. In our understanding, including here on the podcast, of the counteroffensive. Uh, the Western leaders, whether it's Blinken and Austin and Biden on, in Washington or in European capitals, you name who, have basically sold this money to say, we are giving you the means to do another counteroffensive. But, but in my understanding, the means that we've given them as we are assessing the end of the year, have not been anywhere close in quantity or quality for a counteroffensive. They've been enough to hold the line, but they were not enough, no air power, no possibility to overcome the minefields, etc., unless you want to completely sacrifice uh, a significant uh, part of the Ukrainian armed forces for a counteroffensive. And it was a mistake for the West to sell it as such, this discrepancy. And of course, it was a mistake for Zelensky and for Ukraine to accept this narrative because this has increased expectations to an unrealistic level. And now it is being framed as, well, it's Ukraine that failed. It's not the West that failed, it's Ukraine that failed. And that, to me, as we're wrapping up this year, is the biggest problem that will lead us to even more problems with the supplemental and with the war in 2024. That's a fascinating observation. I wonder, though, to what extent you know this this push for the offensive has been a result of a sort of a bargain between the West and Ukraine, and to what extent it has also been propelled by domestic political dynamics. I mean, you know, Zelensky had built this reputation as a wartime Churchillian leader slash hero. And I can imagine that it was tempting for him to, you know, try to sort of continue on that trajectory, even though the resources that he had at hand might not have been an exact match for what his sort of needs were at the moment in order to deliver. I would go a little farther and say it was absolutely necessary for him to do it. Let's cast our minds back a year. Everybody was surprised by the success of the Kharkiv and other counteroffensives last year. Um, and you remember it, it actually took some time for those breakthroughs to, um, uh, to come to pass. And none of the weapons transfers programs were premised on such success. Um, as Yulia is fond of saying, we gave and we had planned to give the Ukrainians as much as they needed to defend themselves, to hold the line. So could Zelensky have said, 
wow, that was great. We had achieved these incredible, we recaptured Harrison, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but now we have to, uh, you know. Hold the line for 60 billion. Yeah, yeah now we have to, but for really for a year in order to build up sufficient combat power, which, uh, you know, I think would have required a level of maturity and political, you know, moxie and strength that would have put him, you know, that was, I could see why he wouldn't want to do that, why uh, the West would want to push him to keep pressing as, to get the war is over with, over with as soon as possible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have, if we try to, you know, cast our minds back to when these decisions were made and and look realistically at what the alternatives were, the logic of Zelensky's uh, press may seem less uh, foolhardy and, uh, you know, more the logic more powerful. And, you know, if we if we look at it, not in retrospect, but what would be what could have been known and what the temper of the times was. I mean, I think the central question is uh, obviously where things go from now. So, so obviously, uh, the war didn't start yesterday. Uh, there are fissures within Ukrainian polity and sort of body body politic. Uh, which lack the escape valve of democratic elections, one has to say, because of constitutional reasons. And, you know, like, I, I dread the prospect of sort of seeing what happens if, you know, a large chunk of the Ukrainian population doesn't see Zelensky as delivering on that sort of, you know, initial Churchillian promise and, and what it does to not just Western support, which we see as flailing, but but the sort of Ukrainian resolve to to continue in this fight, and and I worry that 2024 will show us more about that than we were ever really willing to know. The Ukrainians are talking about, and I'm now shamelessly plugging my most recent article in the New York Post about holding the line, um, but I mentioned there. Uh, a conversation that I'm I've had with a friend journalist in in Ukraine, but he's not the only one who's mentioned that. That now at every informal conversation over dinner or lunch or most conversations, the biggest fear that Ukrainians have is for what they call a third Maidan, a third Maidan, because as you say, Dalibor, they do not have the escape of elections, and if um, Zelensky is not delivering. The risk is um, that they will turn against him. They cannot elect him out. Um, it, but in such a scenario that they're fearing because of the previous two Maidans, um, the fear is that this would be not just creating major political instability at home and further reducing, of course, Western support, but that, of course, this would be a very good opportunity for Putin to try to get his puppet in, to try to remove Zelensky from power, to um, try to get involved like he has been involved in 2013 in the in the Euromaidan, including with snipers, etc. So 
um, so with this fear that Ukrainians have, irrational or not, um, this is indeed a risk of of a spiraling effect of the reduced Western support, um, first in Washington and then in Brussels, that looks like it might be following um, following the U.S. when it comes to defense and um, uh, in, in reducing support for Ukraine. So uh, the dangers are uh, in the transatlantic space, but also at home, I think, in Ukraine. I, I also think that we should not excuse President Biden from this, uh, you know, from his potential role. First of all, and to be fair to him, and to, you know, we'll put all of this in context, um, the Israel-Hamas war really intruded itself on, you know, the political consciousness of, uh, certainly uh, of Americans. You know, that was, there's nothing the Ukrainians uh, could do about that. And surely that accelerated the uh, downward trends uh, from the late summer and, and early fall. But, you know, again, President Biden could do a lot to stem this tide of sort of creeping defeatism if he so cared to. And as Dalibor has quite rightly and consistently observed, you know, this is such a, a critical um, element of his potential reelection campaign, if not for the issues per se, but in projecting a, an image of strength and competency and experience and, you know, all the good things you can say about President Biden. If, you know, when he's facing questions within his own party and, uh, you know, the prospect of a very close election one way or the other, uh, a catastrophe in Ukraine in the next year would be a real body blow to Biden's reelect uh, prospects. So, you know, I think he's he sort of crossed the Rubicon uh, and he would be much better served if he would continue to to press on this than to try to apologize and retreat. Uh, I, I have never understood the political calculus of the administration in this regard. And I think you know, as things become stickier in Ukraine, that that the logic of Biden projecting strength and renewing his commitment and trying to reverse the tide in this country is is more compelling. But it's, I mean, like what, what strikes me as all this, like so, so we are so you know talking about renewing commitment, but like the, the real political struggle is to keep the aid and the military assistance at the sort of minimum barely acceptable level yeah. going forward. I mean, that's what the sort of supplemental is. And even that is not treated with the degree of urgency it deserves. I don't know, do you, Giselle, do you think that people in the administration sort of understand how catastrophic it is going to be if starting January, going into February, like Ukrainians just don't have the munitions that they need and they can't source it elsewhere because there's nobody, no other place in the world that, that sort of manufactures this stuff on a scale like the like the US. There's there's no source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, 
I don't know what's going on, you know, inside the administration other than, than what I read, uh, you know. And I, I'm perplexed by it, honestly. Even during this, uh, you know, back and forth over the supplemental, the president has been absent without leave. He's gone to Israel, you know, like on an hourly basis, and so has Secretary Blinken. Um, but they've said almost nothing about what you quite rightly uh, frame as a pressing need on the, uh, you know, he, he's left the debate. You know, the initiative is entirely on the Republican side. And it also strikes me that, this, so, sorry to interrupt you, but like the sort of politics of this is so like dumb. I find it just so puzzling. I mean, like it is in his best interest that he be not perceived as a dove on immigration and asylum either in the general election. He doesn't have a primary challenger from the far left. Uh, and and it like it strikes me that all he needs to do is to just, you know, go go hawkish on, 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 on immigration the way France has gone hawkish on immigration and the European Union has gone hawkish on immigration. Uh and and, and then we you know then then we'll have a sort of win win situation. Well no he does have a he does have a pretty strong element in his party that plus you know it's the republicans again who are making the running on immigration they they just want to you know make this an issue i i, I don't you know the republicans one of their first bills in this congress hr2 was a very very tough anti-immigration piece of legislation i'm not sure that if biden just bowled over and agreed to every provision in that, that the Republicans would be willing to take a deal that included aid to Israel, aid to Taiwan, aid to Ukraine. That's what everybody's been talking about. And that, that no doubt, <laughs> the legislation is already written, but I think the Republicans would rather have the issue. There's a strong element in the Democratic Party that's trying to protect uh, immigrants. And you see border states like Texas, you know, sending out the National Guard to the border so that the Republicans for the Republican base uh, hating on immigrants is, uh, you know, catnip. And if they actually, you know, if the Republicans agreed to this and then it sort of they became part, you know, responsible for a solution rather than just uh, throwing stones uh, at the problem. It's, it's, I'm sorry, last, it's ridiculous. The, the Republicans speak, uh, Lindsey Graham says, I haven't been as afraid since 9-11 about what's coming over the border. I think it's a good time for for Congress to take a Christmas holiday. You know, they are clearly able to hold contradictory views at the same time. Let me then ask you the following, the, the framing. Could it be, both of you, could it be that... The Republicans, I think that's what Giselle is alluding to or, or saying, the Republicans are hiding behind immigration or migration policies for as an excuse to just not provide military aid to anybody. Um, and the liberals are hiding behind the Republican blockade of aid because President Biden never wanted this war. He wanted to give Zelensky a ride, right? And so isn't it then then that if we're looking overall 
at the majority on the two sides of the aisle in with different nuances. We have what was recently um, named, I think, pretty accurately in this case in Le Monde, in an editorial in Le Monde, that the, now the national interest of the United States ends somewhere at the border with Mexico. I think that is unfortunately true. These are two parties. I mean, we have had a long period of relative peace in international affairs. Both parties now agree that the Iraq war was the dumbest thing ever. Uh, there's a whole new gen, it's a younger generation of politicians. And it's a, a culture war issue too. So, you know, the environment is not great for a politician like Biden, who is Delabor, you know, and, and well, just, this has always been my observation. I've lived through much of Joe Biden's career. He's always been interested in diplomacy over the use of American military power to secure, you know, as a tool. Uh, but again, it's just not... Uh, you know, Biden doesn't really have the constituency uh, either to, you know, again, I would agree with Delabor that if he's going down, he should go down swinging or, the, you know, it's, it's not like he can do a very good imitation of a, a, a real appeasenik. He's not even very good at that. So the policy, the political clarification, I just don't understand. But, the you know, I do recognize that the president is in a, fighting on a difficult political battlefield in this country. I'll just say one or two sentences on, 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 on this and then yeah. we might want to sort of move on a little. Uh, I, no, I totally agree with, with you, Giselle, that there is I mean, a lot, lot of sort of demagoguery and, and bad faith uh, sort of performance art involved in this on the Republican side. But that doesn't mean that um, I mean that, that sort of border and asylum issue is, is a non-existent one and it doesn't freak voters out. And it I think that that's a sort of lesson that Europeans have learned the hard way after 2015. Uh, and I suspect that, you know, as much as President Biden has to keep, you know, the sort of far left flank of his party on board, uh, I mean, he also makes, must sort of project the sense that he is in charge of, you know, sort of America's borders. Otherwise, you know, it, it, he's just opening the space for, for for demagogues and 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 bad faith actors to to fill it in and and it strikes me that there is a space for him to do that, while also getting uh, the the supplemental across the finish line, and and then it's puzzling to me that I don't see him doing you know a more vigorous effort at getting it across the finish line. Well, that I entirely. Uh, agree with um, the vigor of Joe Biden. <laughs> well, so his staffers say that he, you know, like he's so busy and he does so many things, and like he's a very sort of agile, eighty-one-year-old. Well, okay, he's still president. He's that's you know, he's what did you think he was signing up for? All right. So then, then moving on, if then the next question is, if we put ourselves, um, I know it's difficult, but still into Russia's shoes. Um, what are they looking at? What are their possible gains? What is Putin trying to get until U.S. elections in November? I mean, it, it's a toss-up or not. We will see. We, it's impossible. Of course, he's hoping for no supplemental. I think the comments that he made on December 20th um, have already been 
um, confirming that one more time. He said, you know, he's happy about it's now end of freebies for Ukraine, I think he said. Um, and so if that's a real possibility, if Ukraine will not get any more rounds of ammunition to take or to even hold, um, what is he trying to get from 2024? And the last note I'll put in here is a few days ago, um, The German uh, newspaper Bild um, leaked or, or published some leaked war plans of the Russians that are, no surprise, long-term for eastern Ukraine to take inch by inch into 2025, into 2026 in the Donbass, in Zaporizhia, etc. So that seems to be the the inch-by-inch inch continuation But if, if you were in the Kremlin, what would you be trying to achieve? What should we be expecting from 2024? Well, Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. That's well, yes, but the only question is, will he be content to sort of consolidate what he, the remainder of what he's gained for the moment uh, while uh, husbanding his strength for the next one and ensuring that the United States and the West continued to distance themselves from Ukraine. It is an election year there too in, in Russia. So any gains that he can show can only help him according to the polls, right? I, I think right now he can claim to have withstood the might of the United States and NATO. I mean, yep. Um, He's defeating NATO in Ukraine, according to him. Yeah. I, I don't think this is like a, like a question of like end goals, right? Like, you know, he wants to destroy Ukraine. If he can do it in a year, he'll do it in a year. He probably can't do it in a year. So the sort of rational strategy is to, you know, consolidate the gains, make them irreversible. Uh, we've seen already sort of trans population transfers, right? Russians encouraged to buy real estate in Mariupol and you know, Russians in Crimea, etc., etc. We'll probably see more of that, like within the realm of Like, what is feasible? I'm not sure anybody wants to, like, move into ruins, right? Like, it's not particularly desirable, these the, the sort of liberated places. But, 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 but I think there'll be a sort of deliberate effort to just make it, you know, difficult for Ukrainians to ever retake these, these places back and turn make them, them as Russian as possible, of, you know, yeah. status quo uh, anti. So... Yeah, and look, I mean, try to generate some false flag diplomatic Minsk-like process. Uh, even better if it doesn't include the United States, which would, Trump would be happy with, and that he can sort of try to master the French and the Germans and West Europeans the way he has in the past. So before we um, go on to attend to our various sort of holiday-related duties, I was going to share my highlight or rather low light of the year, which is the uh, declining uh, Central European support for for Ukraine. Um, you know, we heard a lot about the East-West divide in Europe. We've heard about uh, you know New Europe versus Old Europe on these on these matters. But but it is far more puzzling to me to sort of understand why. Uh, there is this flailing support coming, you know, from 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 the eastern periphery, from from places like Budapest, Bratislava, Vienna, 
uh, and perhaps in the coming years from uh, from Prague as well. I mean, we you know we can make different cases for why supporting Ukraine matters. There is the sort of more abstract case, which we can sort of you know let's set it aside for a moment. But then there is the sort of pure realist, self-interested case for for helping Ukraine, which should be very strong and very salient in Central Europe uh, and can't particularly in countries that are bordering Ukraine. Uh, and then finally, there is the recognition that Ukrainians are people like us, that they want the same things that we want, that they want to have a you know normal, well-governed country that's part of the European Union, that they enjoy the same degree of security and stability as, as, as other Central European countries. You would think that that sense would only get strengthened by the first-hand experience that people in the region had with Ukrainian refugees. And yet, whether it's the actual behavior of governments whether it's opinion polls, like all of these things are trending in a very unfavorable direction. It is mind-boggling to me that the populist prime minister of Italy, Giorgia Meloni, is more solid on, 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 on the Ukraine question than, than many Central European governments at, at the present time. And I don't have an answer as to why this is happening, uh, but the fact that, that it sort of seems to afflict the, the Habsburg land uh, makes me want to look for like deep, you know, historic causes, uh, which is probably a fool's errand. Uh, but, but I'll just sort of offer it to you as a, as, a, as, a, as a kind of puzzle in need of an explanation. So I would ask you how you code Poland in this. I was going to mention the Polish elections as a bright spot in the past so I, I i would not put poland into okay. that category i mean there, there has been a sort of ukraine fatigue everywhere like like it's just sort of a sort of time effect that that sort of plays out over time but but it doesn't really explain why you've seen you know that sort of like slump or even absence of initial support in places like hungary and austria uh like it, it's like in poland people are fatigued because like kindergartens are full of Ukrainian children and, and, and there are longer waiting times at doctors. But that hasn't changed the commitment of, you know, the two major political parties that totally hate each other uh, and, and, and are just as polarized as Republicans and Democrats, but they understand that Ukraine's success is in the long-term best interest of well, Poland. I, so, well, so, so Poland is different, okay, well, in my opinion. And, and, and I mean, I, you know, like I think there are very good reasons for that. I think like you know, cutting and 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 sort of like you know, genocide of Poland's elites, you know, within living memory certainly helps concentrate minds in 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 ways. You know, I, I would my final comment on this would just be that Poland is more strategically important, uh, and so I think the you know the constancy of Polish commitment to Ukraine. Uh, is of more weight than the inconstancy of Central European. Yeah, no. I mean, not that I, not that I'm excusing or certainly, uh, you know. I would say that if we're looking at those countries across the eastern flank that have been the most supportive of Ukraine. They still are. Poland, of course, is the most important strategically too. But the Baltics are pretty amazing too. Um, the plan that 
the Estonian Ministry of Defense put out a few days ago, a plan for victory, is the only plan that every, anybody has ever put out on how to win this war. Um, and they're small, they're different from Poland. So then what are we looking at at the rest of the eastern flank? From the, from the beginning, we've had um, split public opinion and, and leaders variably from country to country have more or less succeeded or failed to move the numbers a bit. But this split public opinion from Eastern Germany through Slovakia, through Bulgaria, through Moldova has been due to disinformation, etc. To that, you add um, the element of economy. For Georgia Maloney, Ukraine is not decisive for elections, but migration is from the South. So she's focused on that. Whereas Italians, their economy is certainly not great, but it's a lot better than Slovaks or Romanians, etc. And when I was the last few times in these countries, the summer, the past winter, inflation was just shocking. I don't, people are telling me, friends are telling me in Bucharest, I don't know if I will have enough food. These are journalists, middle class. Uh, I don't know if I will have enough food next month. Um, and, and all of that has been really exaggerated by bad management, bad PR, and of course the war itself. So I think that the 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 tendency plus the plus the economy have added to that. And I'll add one more thing, which I don't know if there's something that one can do about it, but it is part of the Eastern Front. Um, and that is that there wasn't in many of these countries much strategic thinking or sympathy towards Ukrainians. I've heard delegations coming through Washington over the past almost two years and on the corridors whispering or, you know, off the record telling me, no matter what country they were from, telling me, well, you know, the Ukrainians, they were so pro-Russian until recently, they're rude, they're this, they're that. And that is not going anywhere. It's just amplifying with Russian disinformation. You have that, of course, in the West too, um, but, uh, but, but Russia has been excellent prior to 2022 and after um, to amplify these, um, these, these weaknesses that we have from um, Slovakia, through Hungary, through Bulgaria, Romania, etc. So I think this is something where, if I were Putin in 2023, where would I have put the money that I have, that I that remains apart from the military, remains from you know starving the population, etc. The big chunk I would have put in the United States, but but the rest of it I would have put where I will. I will have a lot of success and that is in Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, we see that. We see that in Poland to some extent, a little bit, but of course, primarily in Slovakia. We see support possibly reducing in Bulgaria. We see um, support reducing slowly in Romania in the polls as well. So, um, you know, he, he placed his money well, I think. Well, I'd be interested in... Uh in uh, drawing Glalibor out on his uh, Habsburg legacy uh -huh. uh, explanation. Actually, I've been... Uh, I mean, I don't have one, to be frank, but, but there seems to be a sort of common thread going through these countries 
uh, which I'm not quite sure I can sort of account for. I mean, to, to, to just pick up on Julia's last point, which is, you know, the, the sort of attitudes of these countries towards, towards Ukraine. I mean, you know, if anything, Poles have a you know long history of very sort of complicated relations with Ukraine. And I've actually heard many criticisms of Ukraine coming from sort of Polish circles over the years. Yet they sort of saw the situation with sort of crystal clarity that was totally lacking elsewhere. I mean, you know, in Slovakia, to be a little parochial and go back to my home country, what is striking is just the complete lack of any interest in Ukraine, as if the country were not in our immediate neighborhood, as if, you know, it's it's as distant the thought for, for most people as, oh, like, you know, what's the latest news coming out of Turkmenistan or... Or, or Taiwan, like, you know, nobody has ever been to Ukraine. Uh, nobody has followed Ukrainian politics. You know, again, like I would have assumed that this has changed as a result of that sort of firsthand experience with people who were coming to Slovakia fleeing the war. But, but clearly it hasn't. Uh, let me try a pet rock theory on you, Dalibor, that uh, um, liberalism has had a hard time penetrating into the fabric of Central Europeans. I've been reading, I've been trying to work on a Kissinger essay, um, and I've decided that he basically misunderstood Metternich, uh, but uh, uh, also, you know, has, has this sort of I'm uh, okay. I've been, I've been, uh, all right. I, that's enough to shut me up on this one. But at any rate, I just uh, wonder whether, um, um, you know, these countries remain, you know, they had, there's a, there is a Habsburg hangover, if you will, that because of their small size and their central location, and, you know, they, they, the thing they fear the most is disorder and, and thus have a, habit for authoritarianism that uh, that other European countries don't have to the same degree. I mean, I'm not entirely sure by that. Uh, you know, like you had, like, like, you know, the 1848 revolutions were crushed in Habsburg, in Habsburg lands, just as they were crushed elsewhere. You had, uh, you know, places like Vienna being the hotbed of classical liberalism, you know, at some point in, in 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 the past, obviously to be crushed by the totalitarianisms of of the twentieth century. Uh, but I mean, I, I just don't see that story to be terribly unique. I mean, when it comes to cultural liberalism, I mean, it is true that these probably would be more con socially conservative societies than than you know some places in 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 Western Europe. But again, like Poland, I think is you know far more culturally socially conservative than say Hungary. So. So, so I'm not. I'm, I'm sort of struggling to see a sort of source of variation, like in a sort of a quantitative sort of cross-country sense, that would that would sort of be susceptible of doing the sort of heavy lifting. I'm, 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 I'm asking to do to explain my puzzle. But maybe we can wrap it at that. Um, maybe our listeners will have you know will have perspectives and answers that they will want to share with us on Twitter, or you know we can be reached by email or, or through other means. And perhaps this is a good time to wrap this one up. Uh, wish everybody very happy holidays. And here's to hoping that we'll have more cheerful news 
coming from the Eastern Front in 2024. From me, Dalibor Rohaj. Me, Giselle Donnelly. And me, Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter or X using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.